This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. I begin by acknowledging that a broadcast on the unceded stolen lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nation. I pay respects to Elders past and present and extend that respect to any First Nations people tuning in this afternoon. Always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Today in the Glass House, uh, first up, I'm going to be sharing an interview that I did with anthropologist and certified mushroom specialist, Long Lit Woon. She's written a book called The Way Through the Woods on Mushrooms and Mourning, and it is a fascinating look uh, at yeah mushrooming and how it can pull you out of a deep grief, well, it did for her. Uh, that one is out through Scribe Publications, and she was over here uh, from Oslo just a few weeks back for the Perth Festival. And coming up a little bit later on in the program, I'll be joined by design duo Karen Ann Donici and Andy Simeonato, who have created an AI reading machine that reconstructs famous novels into haikus. Very interesting. And the machine is going to be on display at the NGV throughout March as part of the Melbourne Art Book Fair. Coming up soon, we'll hear from Long Lit Woon about her new book out through Scribe Publications. You're listening to Triple R, you're in the glass house. I have my next guest joining me in studio. Long Lit Woon met her husband, Eolf, when she arrived in Norway as an exchange student, but when he died suddenly at 54 after a three-decade-long marriage, she was lost. She signed up for a beginner's course on mushrooming and amazingly uh, found comfort and a sense of community wandering through the forest and parks in search of mushrooms. Long Lit Woon has written a memoir called The Way Through the Woods, on mushrooms and mourning and long lit wound joins us now. Thank you so much for your time. So Woon, can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with Eilf? Well, you know, we, we, we sort of grew up together because I, I, I met him when I was 18. He was 21 and we just, you know, were very comfortable and very comfortable together. So I'm, I'm very pleased he was my life companion. Mm. Yeah, very grateful for that. And you moved from Malaysia to Norway after you met and you kind of spoke about the possibility of one day doing this uh, this mushroom course. I'm interested, what fascinated you both about about mushrooms? Well, it was quite easy actually because we both like to eat and uh, <laughs> and so it was more that part that, that got us interested. Uh, but we never did anything about it. It was just something we talked about and... Um, so after he died and um, this came up very in a very casual, accidental way, somebody told me uh, that the, 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 the amateur society was going to run this beginner's course. And I thought, you know, why not? You know, Do you want to maybe do a bit of a reading from that? Oh, I would love to. Thank you. So after Eolf died, I, I, I wrote this book and it is a book... Uh, with two journey about two journeys, an outer journey and an inner journey. And the outer journey is my discovery of the kingdom of fungi because it is its own kingdom. And so it's not only about the mushrooms, but it's also about the, the mushroom pickets because I'm an anthropologist, so I, you know, cannot help myself. And uh, the inner journey is in this landscape of grief. So this book is about how these two journeys are interconnected. Okay, this is the story of a journey which started on the day 
when my life was turned upside down. The day when Eorf went to work and didn't come home. He never came back. Life as I had known it was gone in that instant. The world would never be the same again. I was devastated. The pain of my loss was all that was left of him. It tore me apart, but I had no wish to dull the agony with painkillers. I wanted to suffer every ounce of the torment, raw. It was confirmation that he had lived, that he had been my husband. I did not want that to be gone as well. I was in free fall, I who had always been in command and in control, I who liked to have a firm grip on things. My lodestar was gone. I found myself in unknown territory, a reluctant wanderer in a strange land. Visibility was poor and I had neither map nor compass. Which way was up? Which way was down? From which corner should I start walking? Where should I set my foot? There was nothing but blackness. It's a long wet wound. Reading from her book, The Way Through the Woods of Mushroom and Morning. Wound, so you take this mushroom course. Mm. What did you think it was about this mushroom course that might be able to help you process your grief? On many things. As you just read, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is, you know, of Mushrooms and Mornings. And the book is about how these two very disparate themes are connected. But the the first way in which they are connected is what got me hooked. And this is um, the joy of, of, of the hunt and of finding something. And, um, and this came at a time when I did not, I did not know whether I would, you know, ever be happy again. If you like, I can read a little passage about this. Uh, One thing is the sense of mastery that comes with more knowledge and more practice in exploring a forest. Something else and quite unexpected is the feeling of euphoria. My heart leapt the first time I found a delicious edible mushroom on my own. Was this happiness? It was staggering to actually feel an emotion I thought had gone for good when Eof died. It was like being given an intravenous shot of multivitamins. What a sensation. Elation bubbled out of every cell in my body. All at once, a slender golden beam of light pierced my soul. Find one mushroom and there's a good chance that you will find another nearby. The thrill of discovery is cumulative. One mushroom, one delight. Mm. Two mushrooms, double delight. Were you surprised by how much getting into mushrooms? Yes, of course I was. And I think not only myself, but also my friends, you know, because I, I started talking a lot about mushrooms. But basically, I had this very concrete experience that I just read about and, and, um, and when everything is very dark and suddenly something, you see, you know, a flicker of light somewhere, well, I, I just followed that. I mean, I didn't know where it would lead me, but I didn't have anything else. So all this has come as a huge, you know, surprise, of course. But it's not maybe strange to think about it in retrospect, right? Because one thing, it got me out to the woods 
It got me out of the house, you know, out of my little corner. Um, and and by the way, the woods, it's not a place which I was very familiar with, even though I've been living in Norway for 30 years at that time. And this is something all Norwegians do. My husband was not that keen on this, so I was very happy about that. So, and we, you know, we were happily going around you know, at museums and exhibitions and things like that, instead of walking in the woods in the, we- in the weekend, which all Norwegians do. Mm. So this got me into the woods, you know, new landscape, um, new knowledge, new friends, new joys. And it also this thing about, uh, it's not that simple. I mean, one thing is what I just said, you know, one mushroom, one joy, you know. But the thing is, I went to the woods and I came back with a basket of nothing. That happens sometimes. And I still was happy. So it got me thinking, so what is it that is happening? So basically, mushrooming also taught me, well, gave me a new definition of happiness. So in that sense... It um, it helped me redefine myself because when you lose somebody, and this is a book about about loss, about um, but also about life, you know. Mm. And um, so, in order to go back to life, you need to redefine your identity in a way, become a new person. And how does one do that? In a way, I suppose. By having new experiences, new perspectives, that's a way of doing it. New new people around you, that's another way of doing it because th- these mushroom friends, they did not see me as wound with this huge hole by my side. You know, I had a chance to, to in a way, stand on my own feet. Mm. Mm. I'm interested in, you know, the mushroom community. You, you speak about it at the start of the book by saying that uh, the community of mushrooms enthusiasts are almost like a classless community. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That was what struck me in the beginning, and that was what I I I, I was very attracted to because uh, I mean you could see that you know okay people were of different ages and uh, uh, you know diverse in all all sorts of ways, and yet they was they were united in their common interest, you know, and people just talked about mushrooms, you know. So I was fascinated. But of course, after a while, I understood too that this this is a little society like any other, and there are heroes and there are villains and there are you know hierarchies and there are secrets and um, you know the usual stuff. Mm. So that was fun to discover too. Yeah, I'm interested that you say secrets because you've kind of spoken about how some mushroom foragers don't like to reveal certain spaces and places where they can go to find mushrooms? Of course not, because this is a limited resource. And, you know, you, and, you know the time in which you can pick the mushrooms is, very, uh, is a very small window. So, you know, if you have a secret spot, then you will increase your chances of getting something. And as you know, this is not, nothing is guaranteed here. You know, the rains have to be right. The temperature has to be right. Everything has to be, to be right, you know. Everything has to be aligned before the mushrooms appear in front of you. 
I'm interested in what your experience says about the way that society deals with mm. grief and grieving people. Mm. Did you feel like you could seek much guidance about how to how to move through these feelings? Well, to be honest, no. Um, you know, after the funeral, which everybody comes to, there is just silence. And maybe a few people would, you know reach out a phone but basically they couldn't give me what I wanted generally and what and I myself could not articulate what I wanted either so it was difficult to ask for help because I didn't know what help I needed but now I know <laughs> that you can divide this in two categories one is existential you need to to redefine your identity who am i now you know and i suppose for someone to help with that you would just have to listen to me you know and not give me advice please you know acknowledge my loss so the people who just you know uh skirt around and go around the bush and try to avoid mentioning Eyal's name for fear of you know ripping up some sore that has just been that is healing that 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 is not what I wanted the other part is practical you know the rubbish needs to be taken out um, I need to I need to eat all sorts of things and so so if you want to help somebody you can do one or the other or both very few people are I would say qualified to do both, but you can always do something. And and for me anyway, because people are very individual and grieving is a very individual process. Who have you lost? What sort of relationship did you have with this person? What type of person are you? You know, so you would grieve in very different ways. But for me, this was what I needed. I'm also interested in how important you think this kind of natural element or being out in nature is because it seems to me that Nature is something that is so big that it can kind of hold all of mm. these emotions that we mm. have when we're kind of mourning. What do you think about that? Well, now, of course, I'm very happy that I chose, you know, this course in mushrooming and not a course in stamp collection. <laughs> I think that there's something very special about nature. In the UK, my book is <laughs> classified under nature writing. Definitely for me, mushrooms were my perfect companions because they didn't talk back. They would just sit there silently. Sometimes they hid under tree, under leaves, you know, and sort of like played hide and seek with me. So we had a little conversation going, but it was all in a way on my terms because I could just leave at any moment. And of course, when you're out in the forest, you know, silence compared to the city, but at the same time, a lot of sounds, you know, sounds of birds, of the trees, rustling of the wind, of, you know, when you're walking on the ground, you know, the crunch of the leaves, because this is autumn. It's just a wonderful place to be. If you have just joined us, we are chatting to Longlit Woon all about her book, The Way Through the Woods of Mushroom and Morning. Woon, I'm interested, what does mushroom season look like for you now? Well, um, it's changed very much because I'm traveling such a lot with my book that unfortunately I'm not in Norway when mushrooming season starts. However, 
wherever I go with my book, I will, you know, inevitably meet mushroomers who want to show me their secret spots. So that's very special. But of course, they know I'm leaving the next day. <laughs> uh, but that's very special. Yeah. So I'm, I'm <laughs> mushrooming abroad these days. And do you think that you would recommend mushrooming as a way for other people to, to deal with mourning? Well, definitely it worked for me, but I, I, I think that everybody needs to find their own mushroom. Could be stamp collecting, could be anything. Yeah. Long Lit Wound, it's been an absolute pleasure um, chatting to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Beth. Let's leave it all behind. That one by Mojo Juju and Jolistics. That one came out towards the end of last year from the Ghost Town EP. And up the top, we did take something from Archie Roach, Open Up Your Eyes, that one from his record of last year, Tell Me Why. And I highly recommend checking out the excellent interview that he did with Daniel James on the mission a few weeks ago. If you do want to check it out, you can head over to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Coming up very soon, I'm going to be joined by some guests that are going to be talking all about an AI reading machine. You're on Triple R. You are listening to Triple R and I have my next guests joining me in the studio for the Glass House this afternoon. Design duo Karen and Donaghy and Andy Simeonato have created an AI reading machine that reconstructs famous novels into haikus called the Library of Non-Human Books um, and it's going to be on display at the, for the Melbourne Art Book Fair that's happening Friday, March 13th this Friday to Sunday at the NGV. Thank you both so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Beth. It is a pleasure. I am so fascinated. Can you perhaps start by telling me a little bit about your background in design? Sure. Um, well, Karen and I have been working in, uh, um, together for 30 years now. Yes, we started in 1989. So, <laughs> so it's <just> a while. <laughs> well, it sounds like a while saying it out loud. And so we started in, um, uh, we founded a studio in Milan, Italy, where Karen was a photographer and I designed um, various fashion catalogues and campaigns for a while. Mm. And I know that you've done projects, you know, not specifically like this, but kind of in a similar vein before. Can you tell me how this specific project came about? Uh, yes, yeah, so we work um, alongside machines. So we have a human-machine collaboration in a lot of our projects. And our projects uh, sort of dovetail between uh, data visualisation and computer vision and information and uh, maybe media studies, cultural sort of artefacts as well. So we have done work where we have imagined, for example, all of the news of the world and had it streamed to a website that was called Only the Good and then all of the bad news of that same newspaper would stream to Only the Bad and um, that was a data visualisation on news. So we've kind of always touched on these sort of cultural artefacts that we have, but one that just keeps on returning to our hands is the book. Mm. Like the the book is is this sort of artefact that is you know incredibly human, but at the same time is 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 cold and and sits there waiting for us to activate it. Mm. So can you tell us exactly how this specific machine works? Um, well, I suppose you should talk okay. about the algorithm if you like. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so the machine, Andy does um, most of the mechanical structure, so the sort of engineering of the machine, whereas the algorithm that drives it, um, I code 
um, myself in sort of whatever program works. So the way that the machine works is that we place um, a book underneath the reading machine and there are two cameras, one that reads the left-hand page and one that reads the right-hand page. From these two pictures, it reads the text. So using um, natural language processing and character recognition, it will attempt to make sense or it'll have a comprehension of the words on the page. At the same time as it reads the words on the page, it's also logging a bunch of other data that we as human beings generally don't keep, and that would be the position on the page and the size of the word and the length of the characters and so on. So we have the machine then um, process. So it has a, a, an algorithm where it will find a salient word or phrase on the double page. And from this, it is inspired, if you want, no, the algorithm chooses a salient word and decides to use it as the basis for making a haiku poem. Um, the use of the haiku was probably an excuse to, to roll out the algorithm so that we weren't sort of wandering off down pathways of, of poetry that um, mm. was, was a little off topic. So we found the haiku poem so it can read for syllables and it will make a three-line poem. And but then, using the words, sorry, yeah. but using the words mm. that are exactly in that position on the page. So it erases mm. all Everything the other else. words. Then with this new meaning, with this new poem, it finds an image that will help humans understand the poem that's read and it illuminates the page with an image it finds from Google. So in the case of um, the one we brought um, today, this is a... Um, well, we bought two books I found handy... Um, the one you're holding is um, Margaret Atwood's um, The Handmaid's Tale. And so you can imagine the kind of imagery and the kind of haikus that come from that. And this one is um, a machine reading of um, James's... Um, Fifty Shades of Grey. 50, I couldn't even say the title. <laughs> <laughs> the Fifty Shades of Grey. And you can imagine the imagery in this one um, and the haiku. So... Um, which, which makes it tricky for us because we, originally we were making these and as we were, just as they were being produced, we were handing them to our colleagues and friends and then we realised that um, even if you put a safe search on Google imagery, it's not always safe. Mm. So um, Fifty Shades of Grey in particular was one that we check before we hand it out. Can you give us an example of, like a, of a poem in here just to... I suppose give us a taste of what of what we're talking about. Karen will have okay, to read I just it, yeah. chose one at random. So pages two hundred and sixty six and two hundred and sixty seven. So what's what what we find is interesting, just a side note, is that you can take the original and find the words again and, and find out where, you know, where this poetry emerged from. But this is um also a, a sort of a a long-standing tradition in poetry to leave things to chance, to try and find a selection of words that will tip a new meaning so I'm just going for random and I haven't read this before so tug combination tongue again you need hard positions he's wild <laughs> and and what's can you explain the visual that that coincides and the, with this? the visual of this is an open mouth with the tongue hanging out do you want to give us your interpretation of that? Absolutely not. <laughs> I'd rather not. And and to be, um, to be honest, this is probably the first time that I've read page two hundred and sixty six <laughs> and two hundred and sixty seven of Fifty Shades of Grey. I did not make it that far into the book. Yes, that's fair enough. I, I have so many questions. This is such a fascinating project. Um, I, you talk about it, it being non human, but I suppose in a way you are 
perhaps curating what information mm. is, is going into the machine, how do you pick which books you're working with? Um, well, the first books, the ones we have in, in we used first were just happened to be on our shelves. So we have a lot of books at home and um, strangely... Um, Having said that, I'm looking at Fifty Shades, and we went to the library for that one. Yeah, and the, and the tell is that it still has on because the covers of these books, obviously, we're in a acoustic medium, not official medium, but the covers of the books have also been um, reworked yeah. and and interpreted by the algorithm, and so it pairs back the blurb on the back of the book into a haiku and the image on the front of the book is um, select there's selection of fields of interest or regions of interest in the image and the rest is sort of merged away and one of the pieces um, that we found remained was the white tag that sits at the bottom of the spine when you borrow a library book so we have on 50 shades of gray we have this little white band that goes around because Mm. it's from the Kathleen Syme Library. <laughs> but, but they're books that we generally had lying around and, and you know, it's, it's like when you're, when you're testing anything out, you grab the first thing that you find handy. So they were just books that we had there. Now we're, we're, perhaps we're being a little more um, deliberate in the, the choosing of the books uh, in the new uh, series of editions that we'll have at the um, MABF. Yeah, some of the first ones we've done, the very enjoyable ones are Breakfast at Tiffany's, mm. which um, lends itself very well, also because it's a slim volume, so it didn't, it wasn't so difficult to make our way through that one. We mm. chose the I Ching, I think, as well. Um, yeah. And, um, and also uh, some non-fiction, like a manual on how to play chess, which is very deterministic, so we thought that was interesting to see some, so much chance being applied to a, mm. to a, chess, a chess book. When you say that you're starting to be more deliberate with what you're choosing, do you mean across genre, mm. across language? Like yes. I'm, I'm assuming all the projects in English? So far they have all been in English and we're extending now the libraries uh, because obviously we're leveraging a lot of work of a lot of other humans and teams of humans around. Um, the libraries that we use for natural language processing include all of the corpuses of like Shakespeare and, you know, Chaucer and all of the, the sort of very Western European writers and they all funnel into the Carnegie Mellon or the Brown libraries and we're using those to understand what the words mean and um, the parts of speech and the syllabication. And then we have, um, but we do want to extend it to other languages and to um, to decolonize it in a way. So we would really love to um, find, I, I, I have to work on, the algorithm to work, for example, reading left to right or up to top to bottom, things like that. So mm. as soon as I've sort of put all of those modules in place, then in theory it could read any language of we've, book. And we've, and we've also changed genres and we've recently experimented on newsprint and I think we tried uh, the IKEA catalogue, which was cute. We thought that was nice. So, um, yeah, it, it'll attempt to make uh, haiku from whatever we pointed at. Mm. If you have just joined us, we are chatting to Karen and Donaghy and Andy Simeonato, who have created an AI reading machine that reconstructs novels into haikus, or all books, I should say. Um, and it's called the Library of Non-Human Books, and it's going to be on display as part of the Melbourne Art Book Fair uh, that's happening over this weekend at the NGV. Um, I'm interested in, uh, I suppose, this project and what you think it it kind of says about where we're going in terms of literature and, and the collaboration between machine and human. 
Um, well, that's that. That's our primary um, field of inquiry. Is if we're giving up so uh, much of our reading activity to machines and also writing. So, one example is the autocomplete that our devices now offer. Um, so, we started asking ourselves, well, if if we're working alongside or or through um, so much uh, automated writing. What may that? How will that affect the book in the future? And so, you know, the the results. What you see here are, are the results of that thinking. We're, we're wondering, will we end up with um, what? Um, uh, yeah, with this kind of material, which is, I think, must be mildly infuriating for actual writers, <laughs> human writers. Um, and the provocation is there, um, but obviously it's to, to have a conversation about where the book is going. Yeah, we also draw attention to the idea that most of our reading and communication between humans is transacted through an algorithm in the first place. And we quite often pair these very telegraphic sentences with an image. So if you really want your friends to follow your posts or to retweet what you're writing, then you, you put in like a nice meme or a, a line diagram and sort of 280 characters, and that's pretty much all we need to use to communicate, and, and it's very engaging. So the book doesn't give that to you. The book is sort of obfuscates that meaning. It's laborious. And so we're, we're sort of speaking, Andy put it quite nicely, he said that we're tying... Uh, this kind of post-literate moment back to a pre-literate moment, which is the illuminated script. So the idea of adding an illustration to text that may otherwise be incomprehensible or difficult to engage with, add a picture to it, thin out the text a little, draw the attention to something <laughs> smaller, and we might, you know... It, but it's it's we're not condoning it we're just reflecting that that's mm. perhaps where we are at the moment with our i'm interested have you spoken to any poets in particular about I, their thoughts i i wrote to a friend um nicola tosic in um who lives in belgrade and i said to him i'm i'm getting some i'm getting some pushback on this work um what do you you know what are your views oh and pushback from poets you mean from poets yeah yep. yeah yeah um i think jokingly the other day i, I was predicting that um, I'm going to end up getting into a fist fight with a poet over this stuff. And he um, said, well, as far as from his perspective, he wrote that he doesn't um, like the idea of using a programmatic approach to his poetry, but he had to admit that he does and that we all, in a way, mm. are running programs. Uh, yeah, no, and I think there is a, there is a strong history of poets attempting to shed that deterministic element, to, to, attempting to shed the sort of pre-calculated, pre-thought out. So you have Burroughs and you have the Dadaists, you have Ulipo movement, you have a number of um, precursors to Mallarmé himself, you know, the idea of rolling a die and, and trying to see if that can help us. Um, escape chance. Escape chance, that's exactly mm. right. Mm. It's so fascinating because I suppose it, yeah, it really begs the question of what is writing and, and what is poetry. Mm. Yeah, it's and who is the author as well? Mm. Because in this case, you've got Margaret Atwood's words still in their original position, but a tool designed by uh, Karen's algorithm has picked out a haiku. So it's a mixture of the the, the agency is also shared at this point. Obviously, Atwood never intended to write haikus, 
and yet there you have a book of exactly her words um, placed in a position in which you can enjoy them as such. Mm. Yeah, but they and they happen to fall on that double page, which is the agency of the designer or the publisher who chose the font because that word could have just as easily been separated from its pair and been on the previous page. So it's it's interesting that there's a kind of a discrete um, canvas on which the algorithm can work. Mm. This is going to be um, as part of the um, Melbourne Art Book Fair that is happening this weekend. Can you tell us, you know, how many books can we expect? What do you hope people get out of it? Oh. <laughs> Somebody asked me the other day, and will, will people buy these? You know, and um, we don't have uh, very high expectations. That, but we haven't made very many of the books. And each no. time it reads the book, it reads it differently. Obviously, so um, there are no we to sort of uh, find a way of putting it in on display or for sale if you want because it is a book fair we printed more copies of each edition but each reading is separate so while there may be five of reading number one of breakfast at tiffany's in theory the way this would roll out in the future is that each person purchasing the book would trigger a reading and then their own book would arrive to them being a unique but uh, somebody entity. somebody once said that um, publishing is a, a good way to make a large sum of money become a small sum of money. You can imagine publishing um, books made by an algorithm, you know. that. So, But, you know, there are people that are, who are interested in, and I guess that's the reason we, we, we do the project is because it's, there's a very human need here, is, which is to connect to others interested in the similar subject. So it becomes a, a way of building that community and having those conversations. Um, yeah, but we'll always, I mean, we'll always hope to sell some. Mm. <laughs> and there are about 10 editions now uh, we have, at the fair. Uh, we have, yes, we have 14 separate titles and we have, uh, we'll have probably five to ten copies of each. Mm. Mm -hmm. I think it's so interesting because, I mean, humans have been remixing and collaging and, you know, referencing other people's work, you know, since literature has been a thing. And, yeah, it's just a very interesting collaboration with how it's going to look moving forward with machines. Um, Very fascinating. And thank you so much uh, for your time this afternoon. Thank you. It's such a pleasure talking to you. Uh, We've been chatting all about the AI reading machine that reconstructs novels into haikus. It's called The Library of Non-Human Books and it's going to be on display at the Melbourne Art Book Fair from this Friday, March 13 to Sunday the 15th at the National Gallery of Victoria. You are listening to Triple R. You are listening to Triple R. It is almost time for me to leave you in the very capable hands of Johnny Topper with New and Groovy. I'm very excited for the Listen Conference that is happening in a few weeks. They're always doing such excellent work and it's so exciting that they are bringing back the conference. An incredible lineup of keynote speakers you can just spend the weekend listening to. We are very lucky. I know that there's so many incredible volunteers that have put so much hard work into putting on this conference. I believe it's on the 28th of March. I want to say a massive thank you to my guests who joined me this afternoon, Long Lit Woon, for talking to me all about her memoir called Away, The Way Through the Woods on Mushrooms and Morning. That one is out through Scribe Publications. I also want to say a big thank you to Karen and Donachie 
and Andy Simeonato, Simeonato, sorry, who have created this incredible and very interesting AI reading machine that is reconstructing novels into haikus. It's called the Library of Non-Human Books and it is on display at the Melbourne Art Book Fair that's happening this weekend. You can check it out at the NGV. So much great stuff happening there. I'll be back with you next Wednesday afternoon. Keep it locked to Triple R and have yourselves a bloody nice Wednesday afternoon. You're on Triple R. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.